You are listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation. Open your Bibles now, if you will, to Matthew chapter 7. We'll be taking a look at verses 28 and 29. We have some study guides, I think, that are available. Uh, Do I see Mark anywhere? Yes. Have we given out those? Is anybody that needs a study guide that doesn't have one? Do we have any more left? Okay, I think we've given them all out. So if somebody near you has one that uh, you can look on to, that would be great. We do still publish those uh, on the Internet so that you can have them for the uh, sermon on Sunday morning. Authentic authority is what we are talking about today, and we want to take a look at the truth of Jesus' words, His veracity, the wisdom of Jesus' message, His sagacity, and the boldness of Jesus' delivery, His audacity. What gives a person authority? Many years ago, when I was a young married man, Yvonne and I were given a great opportunity to serve in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, Many of you ladies met Barbara Barker this morning, and she and her husband Frank offered for us to come and work with young people in their church. We delighted in working with young people, as we still do. And so I was teaching in the Christian school there, teaching Bible, and there were a number of other young men, some teachers and coaches about my age. And we weren't a lot older than the students. And sometimes there was a question of who's really in charge here, the students or the teachers. But then the day came when we got a new principal in the school. And he was a retired Marine Corps colonel. And he had been a company commander in Vietnam. And uh, I suspected that something new was going to be up. And early in those days that he was there, I was down in the school office and a young lady was called in for disciplinary purposes and she went into his office and I could hear her raising her voice with the colonel. That was definitely a bad mistake. And pretty soon after that, the word got around as to who was really in charge. We didn't have any more problems with that. But we love that guy, Colonel Hewlett. He was a great man. And we profited from the Marine Corps expectations that there would be respect for authority, instant obedience, and self-discipline. And he said, guys, if you have any problems, send them to me. And that was a comforting thought for us younger men. And you know, really, that's the same thing that Jesus tells us. Guys and girls, if you have any problems, send them to me. I've got the authority to take care of them. Now, Jesus was also an army officer, in a sense. In fact, he was the commander of the great gospel army. The people at that time, at the beginning of his ministry, didn't know anything about it. They thought that he was only a carpenter. And yet, everywhere he went, people were amazed with his authority. Now, we've just concluded the Sermon on the Mount, and then when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as one of their scribes. They were astonished, 
It's a strong word in the original language, ekplesa. It means literally they were struck out of themselves or they were struck out of their senses. They were dumbfounded. He taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes and the rabbis. Well, what was the difference? How did they teach? The scribes and rabbis quoted other scribes and rabbis to support their position. Jesus quoted the Scriptures. The scribes and rabbis went on and on with endless wordy explanations for everything that a lot of times didn't really make any sense. But Christ could give a very brief statement that was right to the point. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here is the Babylonian Talmud, uh, the writings of some of the rabbis, and here's an example of what it was like. Said Rabbi Isaac, the paschal offering is not slaughtered unless there are three groups of 30 men. What is the reason? Assembly, congregation, and Israel are mentioned. That is in the scripture. Uh, We are not sure whether it means all together or one after the other. Therefore, we need three groups of 30 each so that we will have at the same time three groups and three following each other. In that case, 50 are also sufficient. First 30 enter and perform the ritual, then 10 enter, and then 10 follow. And it goes on from there, adding to the Scriptures the traditions of men. So when Jesus comes along, there is a certain truth in His words. And it rings true to the hearers. Section B, the veracity of Jesus' words. What is the authentic authority on which Jesus' teaching was based? Well, Jesus based what He said precisely on the truth. What is truth? Well, truth is a very precise depiction of reality. Jesus is talking about things as they really are. And only He could know how things really are. He told Pilate one time in John 18, it's recorded, that He came to earth for this reason, that He might testify to the truth. In John 8:14, Jesus answered and said to him, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. If you want the truth about life and death, you've got to talk to someone who has been beyond the grave over on the other side. And only Christ would be that one. And then he said in John 17:7, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Wait a minute, somebody says. That sounds like circular reasoning to me. Uh, Jesus' authority was based on His teaching, which was supposedly true because it came from the Scripture, which Jesus said was true based on His authority. Well, there are many compelling reasons that we can give. Here is Jesus saying that His witness is true and that His Word is true. If you want to be sanctified, if you want to become like Christ, you've got to have the Word. Now, we could say, well, there are a lot of evidences that are available. And you can offer many compelling reasons why the Bible is true. There's the uniqueness of the book. 
And you can think of um, one book written over a period of 1,100 years by over 40 different men that has a central theme. That's a very unusual book. But there's also the manuscript evidence. And there is archaeology and fulfilled prophecy. And then there is a system of truth in the Bible rooted in space-time history. And it's logically consistent in itself if you accept the entire system, which means you have to accept the supernatural. I'd rather believe in the supernatural than some of the explanations that are given for our origins today. But with all of that evidence, you still can't absolutely prove that the Bible is true in the sense that you can have a debate and you can absolutely prove it, or you can go in the chemistry lab and absolutely prove that the Bible is true. But there is another way that you can prove the truth of Christ's words. And that is a very subjective, experiential way. Let's go to John chapter 8 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him, If you abide in My Word... You are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. If you abide in the Word, then you can know the truth. And then in John seven sixteen, Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but His who sent me. If anyone wills to do His will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. So if you really want to know the truth, you've got to get into the Word, and then you've got to do what it says. And then you can experience the greatest evidence for the truth of the Bible and Jesus' words, and that is a changed life. Who can argue with a changed life? If your life has been changed considerably, then you know what I'm thinking about. But you've got to stay in the Word and you've got to do His will, then you can know. And then you need to know that if you do have some interest or motivation in getting into the Scripture and abiding in the Word and doing what God calls us to do, that it's because someone turned on the light so that you could see what's going on in this life. Who turned on the light? Presumptuous grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a partially fallen but basically good boy like me. I once was lost, but then I found a map. Thought I was blind, but then I turned on the light, and now I see, praise be to me. That is a poor rendition of John Newton's hymn, but that's the way some people think. Look at what I have discovered here. Well, from my standpoint, that's what I've discovered. But from the standpoint of the Holy Spirit, He's the one who is turning on the light for me, and there is good reason for that. 1 John 2.14 The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God because they are foolishness to him. He cannot know them because they are spiritually discerned. It takes the Holy Spirit to get us tuned to God's channel. Paul reminds us that they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. 
Who are they? They are you and myself. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. How was it that some of the people who listened to what Jesus had to say responded as if it were the truth? He's preaching. They hear it. They say, yes, that's the truth. I want to follow Him. Well, that's easy. God opened their eyes and their hearts to understand the truth. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the glory, a light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And then Paul gives us, uh, or we're told about the Apostle Paul by Luke, writing in the book of Acts, gives us a specific illustration of a lady who, for whom suddenly the light came on in her perception. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Why do you think it was that many religious people in Jesus' day did not heed the message. Many religious people. Well, it's just like today. Modernists say that the Beatitudes are nothing but platitudes, rather idealistic cliches that no one could live out in the real world. God doesn't even really expect you to be meek and mild. How could you ever get waited on if you were meek and mild? Or it's the social gospel. Take the Beatitudes, love your fellow man, and leave out the rest of the New Testament. Or it's the Kingdom Age. When the Kingdom Age gets here, if it ever does, then we can talk about the Beatitudes. But you don't have to worry about that right now. That's something that is for a time later on. There are all kinds of misconceptions about what Jesus is saying. Even religious people failed to get it. Do we get it? We learned that the kingdom of God is within you. And it's within you here and now. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones reminded us of some things in his book on the Sermon on the Mount. He said that the Beatitudes are the perfect picture of life in the kingdom of God. If you don't have them, something is wrong. You might not be in the kingdom of God. Now, you would not hit the bullseye every time for certain. The best Christian in the world certainly misses the mark. But you better be aiming toward the image of Christ instead of aiming at a target in a different direction. And as we saw the Pharisees, their hearts were not right. And they had some other goals besides the ones that Jesus would have for us. Their eyes were blinded from seeing the truth and applying this truth in their lives. That'd be the reason that so many religious people missed it. Their eyes were blinded by various things and mostly by what was going on in their own hearts. Their ignorance due to the hardness of their hearts, Paul said. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of glory of Christ. 
Well, they were the ones that we studied about in Matthew 7 who will come on Judgment Day and say, Lord, Lord, we did all these religious things. And the Lord will say, depart from me. I never knew you. I was looking for some poverty of spirit. I was looking for somebody hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But I didn't get it from you guys. Sure, you were busy doing all these good works, but it didn't count for anything because there was nothing down here. Nothing pleasing to Him. That would be a terrible predicament to come down to the end of the line and find out that you had wasted your efforts in trying to live the Christian life. Well, the Christian life is not just something that you try to live. It's a life that God gives you that you recognize is impossible to live. But with His grace operating through us, then we can press on toward the mark. And when we miss the mark, then we can confess our sin and He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from that unrighteousness, that pollution of sin. The guilt's already taken away, but I've got some pollution. And He removes that and I'm clean and I go on to press toward the mark. Jesus in His authority made some rather bold statements. He said, deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, cross is an instrument of torture and death. Death to self. He said that too. How do you know that Jesus' authority was verified when he spoke? You know, we wouldn't want to be following something that is not the real thing. So how can we know? Well, he never spoke on his own, he said. His authority came directly from the Father. And Jesus authenticated what he said by what he was able to do. Let's take a look at that in Mark 1. And they were all amazed so that they debated among themselves, saying, what's this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. Now, in Jesus' ministry, two things were going on, basically. He was saying some things, and He was doing some things. That's basically what's going on in our lives, isn't it? Which is easier, to say or to do? Well, that's pretty simple. Talk is cheap. I can say all kinds of things. And as we're talking about in the men's group, what I say doesn't always match up with what I do or what's going on in my life. Hopefully I'm going to have the right words coming out, but if things aren't right in my heart, there may be some other words slipping out there. Well, Jesus was authoritative because He could speak a word that everybody recognized as something unusual, but then He could turn around and say not only to this poor fellow who was uh, crippled, your sins are forgiven, He could also say, get up and take up your pallet and head on home. And when the man did it, that added authority to Jesus' message. So you either have to admit that Jesus is the authentic authority, or you have to say that the manuscripts are just inaccurate. That somebody came and wrote a bunch of stuff that wasn't true. And there are a lot of people saying that today. Read the Da Vinci Code or the Gospel of Judas. No, don't read that trash. Uh, Read um, 
why you can have confidence in the Bible, Harold Saylor. If you haven't read that book, that's a very interesting little book. I would encourage you to get it. It will strengthen your heart and your faith as well. So if the Bible is true, why don't more people believe it and live it out in their lives? Why don't more religious people believe it and do what it says? Well, I think that uh, maybe if I admitted it, I might be a little bit like the scribes and Pharisees. Much of what Jesus taught in New Testament was directed toward the scribes and Pharisees. And you remember we studied there in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kept saying about a half dozen times, you have heard that it hath been said, and the ones that were saying it were the scribes and Pharisees, and what they were saying nullified the Word of God. Now, here's the problem. The Pharisees, the scribes, like myself, were sons of Adam. And sons of Adam have natural inclinations. And a natural inclination is to come up with some interpretation of what the Bible says that makes me look good. And I have a tendency to follow some of those same natural inclinations. But wait now, for Christians... Natural inclinations are done. We are a new creature, a new creation in Christ. Yeah, but those old natural inclinations keep trying to resurrect themselves. And sometimes I find myself kind of slipping back into that kind of thinking. And I say, you know, I mean, I don't say this, but it would be an example. I got rid of this one a long time ago, I think. You say, you know, I can't kill the guy, but I could hate him. In fact, I think I do hate him. And maybe I could make some false accusation against him and the law would have to prosecute him. I can't commit adultery. I might lose my job. But I can lust. And that was exactly the thinking of the scribes and Pharisees. They were trying to keep the letter of the law, but they didn't get down to the heart of the issue, the spirit of the law. Now, if you're listening to someone who's telling you that you can get off the hook without true repentance and a change going a different direction, then be very careful with that kind of teaching. Because it's not just getting off the hook when I've done something wrong. There needs to be true repentance. There needs to be a change. That's what that word repentance means. I'm going one direction and I turn around and I go another direction. Now, I need to try to stay off the hook. When I get back on, there's something I can do about that. But what we want to do is put behind those old things, put off the old self, and be moving on toward putting on the new self created to be like Him in true righteousness and holiness. Well, those guys taught according to what all their previous teachers had said, but Christ gave a word from the Scripture. And there were many confrontations with them. Mark 7, Then the Pharisees and scribes asked Him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed hands? He answered and said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. For laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men, 
the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things you do. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. Jesus was telling the truth. He knew they were missing it, but they didn't listen. The wisdom, the sagacity of Jesus' message. When He spoke, people recognized the wisdom and power of God. They didn't always respond to it in a positive way, but they knew something was up. There were a lot of wise men in Jesus' day like Gamaliel, who was Paul's systematic theology professor back when he was Saul. But here's what's said in the Scripture of Gamaliel. In Acts 22.3, he taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. Not the perfect manner of the law of God, but the perfect manner of the traditions that had been passed down. Jesus' wisdom was very different. He spoke to the conscience as well as to the mind. One day Jesus was thirsty and He was out at a well and a woman came along and He asked the woman to give Him a drink of water and they got to talking about some living water. And the woman said, Sir, if you would give me some of this water, I'd never be thirsty again and I wouldn't have to come back out to this well. And Jesus said, Well, go call your husband and then come back. She said, I don't have any husband." And he said, well, that was nicely put. I have no husband. You have five husbands. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. You told the truth, sure enough. And she said, oh, I I perceive that you are a prophet. And then she starts to change the subject. Tell me now, our ancestors said we're supposed to worship in this mountain in Gerizim here, but you say we've got to worship down in Jerusalem. Now, what's the straight word on that? And then they get into, you shall worship in spirit and truth. And then she says, well, I don't know about that spirit and truth business, but I do know this. When the Messiah comes, He will set us straight on all of that stuff. We'll get the whole story from the Messiah. And Jesus looked at her and said, I am the man. You don't have to go any further. You don't have to look anymore. I am He. Now, here's the amazing part of that encounter. She went back into her little town, and she told everybody about the encounter with Jesus that she had had. And the people in the town came back out, and it says some of them responded to Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Your testimony counts if you're testifying to the authentic authority of Christ. But then the Samaritans were so excited about this, they asked Jesus to stay, and He stayed two more days. And then the Scripture said, there were many who came to Him. Many believed because of Jesus' testimony. Our word is good, but when our word coincides with Jesus' word, people are going to see the truth of it they're going to see the authority. Then Jesus brought the message to His own hometown of Nazareth. And coming to His hometown, He began teaching them in the synagogue so that they became astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where did this man get these things? They were impressed, 
but they couldn't figure the guy out. Most of the time we're listening to someone, we are impressed because of the degrees that he has from a particular educational institution, but Jesus was just a carpenter. And they couldn't understand how a guy with no formal theological training could have this kind of wisdom and exposition of the Scriptures. And they were stumped. Now, they were astonished, the Bible says. But that didn't last for long. Not among the Jews. The very next verse says, and they took offense at Him. They couldn't figure it out, so they became offended. Now that brings us to the last section on your study guide, the audacity of Jesus' delivery. Filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus spoke with authority and with boldness. He quickly began to offend people. And we looked several weeks ago at our Tuesday night Bible study at one of the accounts in Luke's Gospel of his offense to a group of people. He was in his hometown, and he was going to preach his inaugural address, and it's the first sermon that's recorded in the book of Luke. Now here's a hometown boy who felt the call to be a preacher, and he's come home now to his friends and relatives, and he's going to give his first sermon. What do you think he's going to say? He is in Nazareth up in Galilee. We know some things about Nazareth from history and even from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, it is mentioned Galilee of the Gentiles. That doesn't sound too good. Galilee of the Gentiles. In the second century BC, Aristobulus the Maccabean conquered Galilee for the Jews. Get the Gentiles out of here. We don't want those guys. And he had some ideas about getting some settlers from down in Judea in the south to bring them up to Galilee and let's displace the Gentiles. And let's reclaim our territory. And that's exactly what he did. So Galilee was a settler town. And politics and culture and religion were all rolled into one gigantic powder keg and the fuse was lit most of the time. Now that's what Jesus was coming into to preach His sermon. The place was intensely nationalistic. So it was the Sabbath day. Everybody gathered in the synagogue. Jesus was handed the scroll. He read from several passages in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He read in part from Isaiah 61. But here's what he did that everyone would have known. He broke off after the first phrase in verse 2 of Isaiah 61 instead of going all the way through verse 7. Now, if he had continued the verse 7, that was the perdition for the Gentiles. That was uh, God's wrath coming upon the Gentiles. And everyone in that congregation would have known that he broke it off right at that point. Why would this hometown boy do that? But then it went on further from there. When he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. 
And then he sat down and he said, today is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. That woke up the entire congregation. And there's going to be a response to that all right. Now, the acceptable year of the Lord, that's either the year of Jubilee or it's the beginning of the Messianic age. This guy's claiming to be the Messiah. He sounds like a rabble rouser to me. And the people begin to get upset. But then to add insult to injury, here's what he said. He wanted to tell them about great faith and give them a couple of examples. So here were the two examples that he gave. The Phoenician woman who uh, lived in the little town of Zarephath, a widow lady who didn't have anything to eat, and a Syrian army officer named Naaman who was a leper. Those were the two examples. In other words, he was saying this. There were many widows and lepers in Israel in the days of Elijah and Elisha. None were helped except this foreign widow and this foreign general. The people thought, what is the matter with this boy? He has turned a text of judgment into a passage of mercy. The Messianic age is a golden age for us and God's vengeance on them. We don't get it. Instead of, here's what's going to be done for you, he's saying, here's what you need to do for others' benevolent kindness to the Gentiles. Benevolent kindness to the Gentiles? Who would have the audacity to say anything like that in the town of Nazareth? So immediately they charged him with blasphemy and they carted him right outside of town to be stoned. And you see it there in Luke 4. Those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of him, them, he went on his way, because it wasn't his time yet. In the very next verse, 31, you see him going on down to Capernaum, still in Galilee, and teaching again. His was a bold message. He claimed that before Abraham existed, before Abraham was, he existed. He declared that he was one with the Father. He asserted that he could do whatever God could do, including forgive sins. He assumed the exclusive rights as the Messiah. He exercised amazing zeal for the sanctity of God and His house. He courageously proclaimed an unpopular message to a sinful people. And he championed the cause of those who were downtrodden and forsaken, something not very popular among the religious leadership as we know from the story of the prodigal son. So the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus brought that day, was a great sermon. But the authority of the sermon derived from the preacher. Unlike the sermon that I would be giving today, which hopefully would derive from the authority of the Scriptures. It's very different. It's not only do you hear the words, it's what do you do with the preacher. And you need to know that the only way you can live out those words would be that if the preacher is living within you, within your heart, that his spirit dwells within. Jesus claimed to be the authority. A very familiar verse, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, 
all authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. And then you remember what he told us to do. He has the authority. He'll be with us even unto the end of the age. But we have got to go and make disciples. Now, what makes Jesus' claims authentic? I would offer to you five things in closing. His holy life, His miracles, His sacrifice, His death, and His resurrection. And you can put a lot on that number five. Because if the manuscript manuscripts are true, then He was resurrected from the dead. And there began from that point a worldwide ministry that continues on today. What is your response to the words of Jesus? Do you see them as authentic? Have you subjectively, experientially proved that he's telling the truth? Well, here's what he says. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you refresh our spirits in such a way that it brings strength and stamina to our bodies. But we understand that it's that spiritual refreshment that we truly need. In fact, we need a new heart. And I would pray, Lord, that if there is someone here today listening to these words from Scripture who has never made a commitment of his or her life to you, the real thing, that today might be that day simply to acknowledge a need for forgiveness of sin, a Savior, not just to be saved from eternal destruction, but to be saved from sin and its effects in my life. And who would come to you as the living Lord Jesus Christ and ask that you take away my sin and that you replace those thoughts of the heart and attitudes with a new attitude and a new awareness and a new ability to do the things you've called us to do. And would just ask you to come into the life and take control of the life and to make me the kind of person that you would want me to be. Oh Lord, thank you for the truth of your words in Scripture. Thank you for those in the past that we can recall who brought those truths to us in such a way that we might understand them. We thank you for sending your Holy Spirit to touch our hearts, to see our need for your presence in our lives, guiding and controlling in all that we do. Lord, we are grateful to you. And we pray now that you would bless us, that we might bless others. We want other people to have the privilege of worshiping you even as we worship you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. You have been listening to a Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship audio presentation.